Uh, yeah. Should we start? Yeah, start the show. All right. Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here at a very exclusive party full of famous leftists. I at the at the uh, the secret uh, commune loft inhabited. Yeah, the commune magazine lair. We are here with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Shredder, aka Sham. <laughs> the shredder of the modern Some looks like shredder. <laughs> Krang might be here, the famous Twitter Krang. Oh yeah. I yeah. don't know who he is. That weird Twitter He's, guy, yeah. We don't know. He might be. Could be any of us, really. I just want my brain to someday be in a tank and have like a mech surrounding it. I know we'll win. Yeah. Well, we win if if we get to that point in time. Program. That's part of the program. That's the maximalist <laughs> program. Uh, we are here. Uh, it is a, a tremendous weekend uh, this weekend. A uh, little thing called historical materialism is in town, which is a chance for um, all of the uh, hipster, bourgeois leftists uh, across the entire world to come and look down upon all you other leftists in the rest of the country. And we're very, very happy to, to have this group here. Um, we live in the Verso loft all together usually and, uh, you know, hammer out the mass line on how we're going to undermine socialism, uh, how we're going to use irony to, like, destroy POC. But this is the one weekend of every year that we come together and we actually unite as a left. So it's super exciting to be here. The Red Brand Alliance is doing great. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess we are getting some interviews with some uh, luminaries who just happen to be at this party. And our first luminary is the great George Chicarello Mar. Thank you all for having me. I'm feeling luminous. All right. <laughs> You are bioluminescent, my friend. Uh, George, it's been uh, probably like a year or so since we've seen you. How, how's everything been? It's good. Being unemployed is kind of awesome. You get to read a lot. You get in shape. It's chilling. Deadass, you and me both, man. Deadass. Unemployment forever. Fun employment, as they say. Um, uh, I think George has... Um, He's a, he's a man of many talents, but one of his talents is uh, understanding, analyzing the situation in a particular... <laughs> Jamie's talking about her butt being scratchy. But uh, George is uh, probably most known, as, known for as a scholar of the situation in Venezuela. Oh, I thought you were going to say he's best known as a shit poster. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> he's got a PhD in shit posting. I mean, six of one. Really what, was the, what was the Bolivarian <laughs> Revolution but just a giant shit post, right? Yeah. I mean, shit it's, a long, it's, it's an extended troll. Let's just be real. It's El Proceso. <laughs> Actually, before we get into Venezuela, because our audience, I think, uh, has wanted us to touch on this for a while, but I think we kind of knew that this process is going to be very long and drawn out. Can you tell us about um, your, one of your more proud shitposting moments? Uh, was, you, was it the white genocide, or was there another moment that you felt like you really reached that luminary height of, uh, of trollery and shitpostery? I mean, to be completely honest, uh, my, probably one of my proudest moments is being blocked by Gloria Stefan um, oh, wow. for calling her a gusana. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and this is, you know, there's certain things like you can call Ana, Gus uh, Ana Navarro a gusana all you want and say... 
and, and say that, you know, and you can point out that her dad is a Contra and she's proud of it. She won't block you, but Gloria Estefan, she's been had me blocked for, for a bunch of years now. And That's impressive. <laughs> I, know, right? I mean, she still wants her land back. Let's just be real. She wants her land back in Cuba. So. She, she's really Cuban. So she's like, the Miami Sound Machine was basically like a Gusano op. Absolutely. Oh, my God. The See, rhythm, the rhythm is going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> the rhythm of counter-revolution. <laughs> Well, before we let the rhythm get us, uh, as we sit in this beautiful loft in Brooklyn uh, with Towns Van Zandt bizarrely playing in the background for this interview, um, let's start things off. So, as a, um, a scholar of the Venezuela situation, you know, before we get into the intricacy of it, Venezuela. If I was that, that houseman woman from the New York Times, I'd say, uh, I'm scared about what's happening in Venezuela because my father, he's in the IMF, and he tells me that things are really bad right now, and uh, Ruth Gator Ginsburg is my spirit animal. But all just doing Megan McCain. That's literally just the Megan McCain voice. Plus, <laughs> She is the Gusana uh, Megan McCain, let's say. But let, let's get serious for a second. <laughs> Oh, we're loose. We are loose. Having that fucking argument is like my mind wants to turn itself inside out. Because people are like, that's an ethnic slur. I'm like, so it's reverse racist. Is that what you mean? Because it's really about white Cubans right. in Miami who also have bad politics. All of those things. So It's like, um, it's like calling a turf. It's like uh, people saying turf is a slur, right? It's like, no, you are literally a trans-exclusioner. Like, you took that position for yourself. Well, you should really just call them taps. Yeah, there's nothing radical about being a TERF, sorry. Yeah, no, that's fair, that's fair. Sorry, TERFs who tried to turn us to your side recently by emailing us with a bunch of bullshit. We're never going to become you. But, um, you know, we'll do a bit of a dive into this Venezuelan history, but uh, why don't you just, like, in your understanding, where is Venezuela at right now with this attempted coup with Guaido, Mm -hmm. with the Maduro regime? I mean, what's the current situation in Venezuela? So what you had is on January 23rd, an absolutely unconstitutional and absurd coup attempt led by a relatively unknown bench warmer named Juan Guaido. Um, You know, he's someone, he he came to the head of the National Assembly almost by accident. He's a stand-in for people in jail, Leopoldo Lopez, for example. Um, And, you know, this is essentially a planned coup, planned by, uh, you know, by the Lima Group, which is a group of right-wing Latin American governments in association, direct conjunction with the U.S. government. And and you can see this in the fact that everyone knew it was coming. They knew then when it was time to act. They knew when it was time to recognize Juan Guaido. Um, and what is surprising uh, about this is that it has more or less uh, failed. Um, Guaido uh, and others, Mike Pence, Donald Trump, expected the Venezuelan military to fragment, the population to rise up, and they have not. Um, and this speaks not to the Bolivarian process as uh, super healthy, you know, at the moment, or as perfect, right? Um, but, but to a specific kind of resilience, I think, that we need to grapple with. Namely, the fact that Maduro has lost a lot of popularity in the course of this economic crisis, um, and, uh, but the opposition has not gained any support, has not gained any uh, sympathy from the poor in particular, and so you have a chunk of the population that's still very uh, loyal to this Bolivarian process, despite everything, despite the, the really uh, 
incredibly difficult economic crisis, you know, which has to do with uh, a lot of things, including some government policies, but also including sanctions, also including the, uh, you know, simply what happens under global capitalism when you try to build an alternative, right? The kind of punishment that your economy suffers and how difficult it is uh, if you if you try to go halfway towards socialism, if you try to nationalize some things and set some price controls, but that you don't push all the way through to communism. Dead ass. So. Um, the last time this was attempted, and now I'm going to take us into El Proceso, right, mm -hmm. which is what they call it. So the last time the, uh, the CIA and the uh, National Endowment for Democracy, mm -hmm. there was no Mike Pence at that time in the process, but there was George W. Bush and, the, and some generals over there in Venezuela. They also tried to have a coup, not against Maduro, but his predecessor, mm -hmm. uh, Hugo Chavez, mm -hmm. and uh, that also failed. So that brings us back to 2002. Tell us a bit about what it means, what El Proceso means, this political but also this social movement mm -hmm. that arises out of Venezuela at this moment mm -hmm. in time and as you said gets gets part of the way towards yeah. some sort of social revolutionary situation. Um, so what happened in Venezuela does not begin with Hugo Chavez. It doesn't begin when he was elected in 98. It doesn't begin back when he attempted a failed coup in 1992 to overthrow the existing corrupt two-party democracy. Something I think we can sympathize you know with. It begins decades before in the armed struggle and the revolutionary movements that had developed since the 60s and 70s, and, and 70s in the lessons of the armed struggle um, and, and it begins in particular with a mass explosion in 1989 against neoliberal structural adjustment where thousands of people take to the street loot, burn, riot for almost a week and then the government swoops in and kills but somewhere between 300 and 3,000 people dumps their bodies into mass graves this is 1989, this is where it begins um, and so it's important to understand that this didn't start with Chavez right? Chavez stepped into this breach stepped into this space, was pushed into power by these movements um, and, and it didn't stop there, right? He continued to be pushed by these movements. 2002, the failed coup is a good example of this, right? Because it's one of those moments where a leader is removed from power. Almost anywhere else on earth, that would be the end of the story, right? I mean, the coup would have succeeded. They succeed everywhere else. You know, when in history has a coup been reversed by popular action in the street? But this is what happened. Hundreds of thousands of people came out uh, including armed elements, including armed militias, um, who made it perfectly clear that they would uh, take action against the new government if, uh, you know, if, if Chavez were not returned and if the Constitution were not reinstated. Um, and so uh, what happens in a moment like that is that good leadership, ethical leadership, but also smart leadership realizes that they depend on those revolutionary movements, that they need them. Um, and this is part of what happens moving forward is that Chavez both identified with these movements, was pushed by them, was radicalized by them. This is when he becomes more of a socialist, pushes more directly in that direction, this is where he, he begins to help do things that were already ha happening on the grassroots level, which is to develop institutions of, of grassroots democracy, grassroots socialist production, and pushing toward what are today the communes, which people, I think people really need to understand that like a commune in Venezuela, a well-functioning commune, is the space in which neighbors get together. Um, elect delegates to a, a communal parliament. That communal parliament literally makes the decisions about, for example, what's produced in this factory. How is it produced? How much are workers paid? How is the, the surplus distributed to the community, right? How is it reinvested in that same community? In other words, this is a fully functioning communal structure um, that, you know, that exists not everywhere in Venezuela, but, but, you know, but in, many, in many places. At one point, there were 1,500 communes. Um, and so this is the basis for um, a radical alternative to uh, the existing structure of liberal democracy um, and, in, and, to, and to global capitalism in Venezuela. Man, that's really important to understand because I feel like a lot of people are still in sort of an electoralist mindset when they talk about Venezuela. 
and uh, they kind of undersell the importance of dual power and the communos mm -hmm. in this situation. And they only see, I mean, they, they accurately see uh, like Chavez as mm -hmm. an expression of uh, popular mm -hmm. sentiment towards something more socialist, but they don't see the sort of more independent institutions happening outside of bourgeois electoralism. Absolutely. I think this is something that's been missed from the beginning, is that these revolutionary movements have claimed and demanded a certain kind of ferocious autonomy from the beginning, and this has allowed them to develop. And this is what I was interested in when I first went to Venezuela. I said, what the hell's going on? Chavez is over here. People say he's a populist. They say everything's top-down. They say it's all about controlling the people. And then you have these armed militias over here that are doing whatever the fuck they want and organizing communism on a local level um, without any regard for what's happening in the state or through a critical support of Chavez, the same kind of support that revolutionaries have for Maduro today despite everything, despite the missteps, despite corruption, which they hate. You know, it's these grassroots organizers in these communes that are the, the best defense against corruption, the best defense against all of this, but also the best defense against what's going on in terms of the punishment that the, cap the global capitalist system is imposing on this economy. So let's talk about that punishment because um, Hugo Chavez dies in 2012. 2013, thank you. So he dies in 2013, and Maduro is his uh, successor. Mm -hmm. So as, as I understand it, there's a, a dual process that's happening, and, and you touched on this, where you have the, the titular political head of the Bolivarian system mm -hmm. who, based on grassroots struggle, is not forced but pulled towards a more socialist uh, direction. Mm -hmm. But um, he is also amplifying what's happening on the ground and pulling things forward. Mm -hmm. So... Chavez, um, Chavez dies. Um, we don't know if the CIA killed him. We don't know what happened. The, Ch Chavez dies. Um, what happens with the rise of Maduro and also like the, the kind of uh, conjuncture of the, uh, the global capitalist economy in the years after that? So the death of Chavez coincides with a bunch of things. Um, obviously, this is a huge blow to the process. Um, it coincides with a wave of aggression by the opposition. Maduro is elected in 2013. The opposition refuses to recognize it. The U.S. refuses to recognize it. And they go on the offensive. Ten people dead in the streets, right, immediately. But it also coincides with a global collapse in commodity prices, oil included. You, so you have the tanking of the oil price. Um, and you have a crisis building in the center of the Venezuelan economy around the currency control system. So all these things are happening at once. Um, now, Maduro is a good guy. He was a kind of middle-of-the-road safe candidate that Chavez could have chosen. Some of us on the ground were, were kind of pulling for this kind of more lefty candidate who was maybe not, uh, you know, didn't have as much institutional power. We were definitely against this sort of very conservative Chavista candidate that many people worried had developed enough power to, to sort of uh, take the reins. So Maduro was a safe bet. And the first year of Maduro in power actually saw, despite the crisis, despite the growing crisis, it saw a huge amount of support thrown behind the communes. Um, it saw the number of communes explode. It saw Maduro coming out and saying, yes, we need to, as he put it, pulverize the bourgeois state and replace it with the communes. Um, so it's not that there was something wrong with Maduro himself, um, but the position that, that Maduro found himself in ended up being increasingly uh, difficult, right? Economic crisis, more demands. I under, you know, in my view, uh, the Venezuelan military you know, gains more leverage um, than it had under Chavez. Um, and, you know, and we begin to see a shift in the, in the balance of forces that I'll be the first one to identify um, because, uh, you know, the heyday of 
Chavismo as a governing uh, yeah, as a governing project and the grassroots movements working in conjunction together, um, radicalizing each other and pressing forward. Um, you don't see that same balance today. Today movements exist, movements support Maduro for the most part, um, but it's a little harder. It's much harder, I should say, for these movements amidst this crisis and amidst this shifting constellation of forces to pressure the government to push back on uh, you know on policies that they don't like. I wanted to ask you, um, we've heard a lot of conflicting reports on what Maduro has done wrong and what he may or may not have done to contribute to the crisis that's happening there. I think listening to you know the mainstream media, he comes off like some sort of uh, tanky authoritarian. Uh, people throw the word socialist around a lot, don't really define what they mean in reference to Maduro, like what is your uh, educated uh, opinion of what, what he may have done wrong to contribute to whatever's going on there and what's like, I know there are left critiques of his politics as well, but I don't, I don't think that I have gotten them from any really trusted source yet. I mean, if, if Maduro were authoritarian, I mean, we talked about this, like a lot more people would be in jail. Let's be real. <laughs> a lot more people uh, would have seen their lands expropriated. A lot more things. You know, and there were, to be completely honest, it's the moments where um, where uh, sort of uh, strong government action coincides with the demands of the grassroots um, that some people might say are more authoritarian, actually the best parts of Maduro's government, right? When he seized, uh, you know, he seized these uh, you know, distribution centers of an electronics firm that was overcharging the people, right? And so the people said, yes, this is the kind of strong leadership that we need. We need actual direct expropriations of hoarding capitalists, right? Of those who are directly undermining the economy. That's the kind of authoritarianism I think that people want. But again, it's not an authoritarianism that's d sort of uh, divorced from the demands of the class. It's, it's, a, it's a radical, you know, it's a radical process of fighting against our enemies. That's, um, how, that's how slippery, slippery these terms are. Uh, yeah. Not even just authoritarian, but socialist as well, right? Yeah. Because in uh, the United States, any disruption or any attempt mm -hmm. to, um, uh, you know, overcome or expropriate private property is in and of itself authoritarian, yeah. right? Whether that's done by a government leader or whether that's done by a, a collectivo or mm -hmm. a, 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 a commune mm -hmm. group. So, like... People throw around the word democratic a lot, too. Yeah, like, yeah. it's not democratic because they're only way they conceive of democracy is like bourgeois electoralism when you know if it's the will of the people to expropriate these lands like how is that not democratic like that's literally about, and people are talking today during this fucking coup about the idea that oh new elections should be held and then we can just see who's more popular but motherfucker like it is not democratic to have an election under brutal sanctions it's not not democratic to have an election in which one side is directly backed and funded by the cia that's not democracy either this is the kind of democracy that sees the sandinistas voted out of office right because they're you know because people are voting in the context of knowing that the contra war continue if the Sandinistas stay in power, right? This is, this is voting with the, the sword of Damocles over your head, knowing what the consequences of your vote yeah. are. Now, real democracy yeah. is what's happening in the grassroots level, right? right. But it, the difficulty is that that's not counted at the ballot box in the same way. Um, and it can't be. Um, and when you see people building directly democratic institutions on the grassroots level, incidentally, these are institutions that are uh, in many ways vaccinated against 
uh, against corruption, right? They're directly democratic. All leadership can be withdrawn and can be recalled. Um, you know, that democracy for some reason doesn't count, right? It doesn't matter. The fact that if the opposition comes to power right now, even through an election, they will begin a military attack on these spaces of popular democracy. That's not taken into account. During the coup in 2002, independent media outlets um, were directly and brutally attacked. Socialist spaces were directly and brutally attacked. Taken people were taken prisoner. Um, and, and, you know, and so like, we need to think about what it means to really fight an enemy uh, and what the role of democracy is, I think, in that fight. Yeah, for me, I, I think um, the question of authority and democracy in, in this is kind of a red herring because... Obviously, like it is a coup, and uh, uh, you know, if you know, even if you're an opponent of Maduro's policies or, or what have you, um, the United States setting up a puppet regime there is not going to make things better. Probably seems like to me it's going to lead to a civil war, which certainly will not be better than uh, what's going on now, as as bad as it is economically. Um, it seems more like a uh, an example of uh, this is what happens when you try socialism. Uh, right now, like you're going to be isolated. Well, Venezuela. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're to be isolated. You're going to be punished. Like your your neighbors are going to attack you. Um, and, and so it's it's a kind of uh, it's like it, Venezuela is failing because it needs to fail. At the same time, there's something realistic to that that you just can't have socialism in one country. You can't, you can't have it in isolation, and especially as other socialist countries are isolated from one another and fall apart, then they just have less support. The party's um, getting wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, no, and this is a point that I think needs to be made very straightforwardly because of all this talk about socialism, all this talk about, you know, look at what happened in Venezuela. Venezuela is not a socialist country, right? Venezuela, if you've ever been, it's a fucking really capitalist country. Why? Because it's been fucking, you know, the past hundred years have seen oil exploitation, huge consumerism as a result. Um, and, and so this is a country that, it, you know, sees sort of the highest levels of capitalist consumption. Um, and yet in which uh, the government has begun a project um, that seeks to resist that, right? That seeks to create an alternative. And what happens is when you're caught between capitalism and socialism, you get punished for the sins of both, right? If you set price controls that say, no, people should be able to afford uh, chicken, um, but you live in a capitalist country in which you don't actually control all of the means of production, then what happens is the private chicken producers refuse to slaughter the chickens, or they hide them away and hoard them, or they sell them on the black market for a higher price, or they smuggle them across the border to Colombia and sell them at ten times the, you know, the price. And so this is what capitalism does to attempts to control it, right? And we should expect this. And I mean, on the one hand, that not as an excuse for the failures, but also I think it's got something to do with this question of how we as ourselves as revolutionaries understand transition, right? Are we uh, in this until it gets fucking hard and then we're going to jump ship and say, oh, well, we don't want to be authoritarian, so we're just going to stop trying to build socialism now, right? Or are we actually going to try to see this through? Um, do we expect that for some reason, like, socialism is just waiting there in everyone and if you just kind of, like change a couple of things it will spring forth organically or we know that it's going to be a hard fucking fight against brutal enemies that want to destroy us right like transition is incredibly difficult transition toward a socialist society toward communism um but the lesson in this is also that half steps uh lead to punishment right um that the response and chavez was very good about playing out this dynamic he would say all right here's the price on beef 
and if the beef producers uh, refused to follow that price or if they were ca caught hoarding or undermining production, he would say, okay, now you can be expropriated. You know, now you have violated the law, attacked the basis of Venezuelan people's well-being, uh, so now we can take your shit. And that's the kind of dynamic that we need to set into motion uh, toward a quicker transition um, toward direct communist production. So, even if it is a red herring, I feel like we need to debunk a little bit the idea that this, was, this election was undemocratic and that Maduro, you know did some funny business with it. Like, even even among people who oppose intervention in Venezuela, like Bernie Sanders, they'll still, they'll still say, like, oh, yes, he's a bad guy. Oh, yes, this election was fucked up, but it's not a good reason to, like, go in. And uh, to me, it's sort of like saying, I think I heard someone describe it, like, like oh, yeah, Saddam Hussein has WMDs, but that's still not a good reason to invade Iraq, right? It's kind of moving the goalposts a little, but, um, like, why, where do people get the idea that this election was, uh, was fucked up, and what, what actually went on there? So, I mean, first of all, the baseline is that this is the most popular political process on earth. Right. I'm not saying in the present, I'm saying historically. Since 1998, we're talking about more elections than any government, you know, more popular elections. Chavez elected at some points by up to almost 70% of the population. And, and um, for our listeners who might not know, just to be clear, you were there for that, right? You yeah, spent absolutely. a lot of time yeah, and you've no, seen I was this there During the election in 2006, especially when Chavez won 66% of the vote, and no one doubted those elections. There's no question the Carter Center recognized all those elections. Things have gotten more complicated, right? There's a lot of maneuvering on both sides, and part of what I would just say is that the, the maneuvering is on both sides, right? So you hear this last election uh, of Maduro was fraudulent. Well, no. Actually, Maduro definitely won that election. And the reason he definitely won is that the opposition boycotted the election. Okay. And you ask them and they say, well, why did you boycott the election? Well, they say, well, he outlawed these parties. Well, not exactly, right? Um, they, the National Electoral Council told those parties that since they had boycotted uh, elections in the past, they had to re-register themselves as parties, and they chose not to do that. Okay. But they're saying, well, you know, you know Maduro installed this... Uh, this constituent assembly that's unconstitutional well no not really there was a national assembly elected in 2015 the opposition won we should be clear about that also point two it's kind of a strange dictatorship that allows uh, the opposition to completely win the legislature all right so we're already in interesting territory that legislature in 2015 and early 2016 immediately tried to overthrow the government by by various measures and was declared in contempt by the supreme court this is kind of how the separation of powers is supposed to work right not that the venezuelan opposition by taking the legislature controls everything and can take down the president. What you had after 2016 was a tit-for-tat between executive, legislature, and Supreme Court um, that led to a total uh, standstill of government that Maduro attempted to break uh, this deadlock um, through calling for a constituent assembly election. Why did he try to break this deadlock? Because the opposition was engaging in bloody protests in the streets that led to dozens of deaths. You know, this is the part you don't hear, is that this is a bloody, violent opposition that is willing to throw you know, all of the people into the battle as cannon fodder um, as a way to, 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 uh, you know, to overthrow this government. And here's the thing. They're talking about this election, Maduro's last election. They were calling Chavez a dictator. They were doing exactly the same thing for the past 15, 20 years. And so now they're going to show up and say, oh, no, no, we liked Chavez, but it's about this election. That's bullshit. 
Well, I just just to close things out, I think um, both in uh, building the commune and also uh, we made Chavez. Um, you pulled away from this conception that it's merely this um, this political spectacle, you know, that that we understand in the United States that there is a real process on the ground of uh, proletarian self-organization and these communes. So, just for the listeners out there, like, what is at stake? Literally, not about Maduro versus Guaido yeah, or the United States versus Venezuela in the abstract, but for the actual poor and uh, working class of Venezuela, what's at stake for them not being destroyed by, by U.S. imperialism? What are they trying to defend on the ground? I mean, they're, they're trying to defend, you know, on the one hand, it's difficult, right? Because you want to say a lot of the gains of Chavismo, social welfare gains um, and others, poverty reduction, access to food has been wiped out by the crisis. That's absolutely true. But those weren't the, the only, uh, you know, elements of the Bolivarian project. They were not even the, the most crucial part, which is the idea, first of all, that the poor have a right to be engaged in politics. So many people were simply excluded. They were not recognized. They were not in the media. Many could not even vote, and they certainly didn't play a major role in driving political policies. The poor, poor Venezuelans now understand that their role is not only to elect people, but to participate in writing a constitution, in engaging in local politics, and having those local politics have echo nationally and, and, and impact nationally. Um, and, and so that's the piece, in many ways, that needs to be understood, aside from the fact that a return to the opposition means a return to brutal neoliberalism. It means a return to the privatization of the, of the oil industry, which is something that the opposition, you can tell, is, simply, is just waiting to do. Um, it means opening up, and Guaido has already pointed toward this, opening up uh, you know, oil exploration um, by private companies, lowering the taxes that those companies pay to fund Venezuelan social programs, and a return to situations in which you have a crisis like what's happening in the present, but the poor suffer the full brunt of it. The poor suffer the bear the full brunt of it, which is what happened in the 1980s and which is what created Chavismo. That is what's going to happen is that things are going to get a lot worse um, and the only way out of the crisis will be to adapt more directly to the demands of global ne you know global neoliberalism which of course in the long run will be you know the most destructive path that, that Venezuela could take well uh, I think we like to end everything on kind of a call to action so if uh, if our listeners are like wanting to do something to help like what can people in the US or other countries do to support the Venezuelan people right now that's a good question actually and it's not entirely clear on the one hand of course you know oppose this coup uh, oppose, you know, especially the sanctions, right? Because what's happening is this Guaido coup is probably failing, but the sanctions are continuing. Trump has doubled down on sanctions. People don't understand that these sanctions amount to not only a full financial blockade of Venezuela, where most international transactions are made incredibly difficult. Um, you know, when Venezuela needs to send money for oil shipments, it needs to do so in a way that doesn't pass through London or New York or use kind of swift, you know, processes for, for transferring money. Um, and more recently, a, an oil blockade. Um, and, and this is absolutely destroying and brutalizing the Venezuelan economy and the Venezuelan people. And they fucking know what they're doing. They know how many people are going to die. Tens of thousands of people have probably already died from these sanctions. And like it's going Kissinger to be... Like said in uh, 73, right? Make the economy scream? That was the point. And it's a strategy. And you don't have to dig very far into the words of Elliot Abrams or Mike Pompeo or others to realize that this is an open strategy, that they know that they're going to make things worse. Um, and so all this talk about so-called humanitarian aid is bullshit.
bullshit because what they know they're doing is, is destroying the, the Venezuelan people's lives. And so the first call is to lift these sanctions, that there can be no elections under a sanctions regime, um, and to mobilize, uh, you know, to mobilize support for, I mean, I don't give a shit if you support the Venezuelan government, right? Support for the Venezuelan people against an unconstitutional coup. Um, and, and honestly, just to continue to mobilize and organize and organize in your own neighborhoods on that basis. Do you realize that the Venezuelan example helped to fuel, you know, some of the organizing that's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, right? And, you know, people are learning from these examples and learning about examples for local communal power and putting those into practice. This is the same kind of power we talk about when we talk about building uh, self-defense against the police in West Philadelphia, right? Um, or no cop zones in the Bronx. You know, we're talking about similar struggles, similar, uh, you know, ways of organizing on a local level. Um, and so at the same time that we're supporting, uh, you know, or opposing the sanctions in Venezuela, we also need to be understanding that this connects to what people are going through here. That's beautiful. So, folks, don't mourn, organize, and uh, also learn, right? Like, we can learn something from this, from what's happening on the ground over there and take that to our own movements, right? That's a kind of, like, counter-imperial sort of thing, right? Just understand that maybe what's happening on the ground there in Venezuela over the last 20 years, we can fucking learn something ourselves and put that into action. And also, to end this out, George, thank you so much, man. This is fucking beautiful. Now we're going to get even more drunk. But uh, I believe, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Bolsonaro might be in New York City in May, right? I don't think he's going to be at that. A representative of Bolsonaro. Yeah. He's accepting some kind of award on his behalf the, at the, the American Museum of Natural the History. The Brazilian ch uh, Chamber of Commerce or something like that. You up kitchen knives and protests. <laughs> <laughs> so there is shit to do on the ground if you're in New York City, and uh, there's shit to learn uh, from all of this. So um, thank you so much, man. Uh, uh, you guys have any more questions? or? No, I just think, you know, if we overthrow uh, capitalism here, then the U.S. will stop fucking with the, all the revolutions in other countries. So. Absolutely. You, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's got to start in the heart of empire. All our struggles are united. That's what's up. All right, you, you start it off. All right, uh. Okay, so we are still here at the uh, very exclusive HM after party. Uh, there, there is a party happening in Verso, and we said, eh, Verso, I mean, everyone knows about that. Let's go to the cooler one. Um, and we're here with just... The, the most Marxist of all of the HM presenters, uh, including, you know, you've heard you've heard from Sham, but here is the the real brains behind the operation, <laughs> Jasper Burns. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. So, Jasper, uh, you're on the EndNotes panel today. Tell us a little bit about what you talked about. Uh, I gave a talk on um, the question of what I call revolutionary motives. Uh, it's basically asking the question why people revolt or why they don't revolt. I'm really sort of thinking about the kind of motivations that people bring to struggle of all sorts. So in your talk, you, um, you kind of scrambled this conception of the sect or this conception of the vanguard and you talked about um, this this pastoral uh, this this pastoral sense of the uh, uh, the socialist movement, and also what was the other one that that uh, that you met? pastoral and pedagogical, right? Yeah. So so tell us a little bit about how that's played out through history, and why you think that perhaps that's something we need to overcome. 
Marxists have had different answers to the question of why people struggle, why they revolt, why they engage in strike or riot, um, or you know, take the time to organize. Uh, and um, some of those answers are good and some of those answers are, are bad. So I'll start with the bad answers. Um, I think there's a whole kind of class of Marxists who think that people do things, proletarians or working class people struggle uh, because they've been taught to or educated in some way or they've been provided uh, the right kind of leadership. And so these ideas around leadership or education our ideology are really pervasive, but I think they're kind of destructive. Um, I think there's another story about why people do things uh, that really insists that there's kind of this capacity for self-organization that runs through all movements, this creative capacity to kind of come up with solutions and strategize and, and plan that is pretty universal uh, and appears in all kinds of moments, and then people don't really need to be taught what to do or led what to do. So you have this conception that, that you and others use, uh, which is the cycle of struggles. Uh, tell us a bit about what that means and uh, this process of a, a struggle learning about itself and a struggle producing its own sort of theory out of its uh, self-activity. Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't actually use the concept of cycle of struggles that much in my own work, but I do think that Sham is more of a... Sham is more of a cycle of struggle stand than I am, um, but the, the concept is important. I mean, I think I think there's a couple there's a couple different ways that it gets used. Sometimes it can be used to kind of refer to like very kind of long wave uh, uh, movements, you know. So you talk about a cycle of struggles, and maybe kind of like you know, on on the order of the workers' movement as a whole, but also kind of might refer to uh, a kind of sequence of events that lead up to a kind of revolutionary break or conjuncture. So, you know, like the, the Russian Revolution uh, starting with 1905 and this kind of period of retreat and going back and finally then 1917 happening through this, you know, um, succession of events. That would be a cycle of struggles. So what point do you think we're at in the current cycle of struggle? Because I've heard a lot of people... Uh, say a bunch of different things about it. Some people think that it started with, oh, Bernie Sanders, and he started it all, and now it's it's happening. It's finally happening. We're at the beginning. I think maybe, yeah, yeah, it's a commune line, exactly. I think maybe we're at the end of the beginning of the current cycle of struggle. I can kind of trace it back to, like, maybe the WTO protest, to Occupy, to now it's finally starting to bubble up into the electoral sphere and I feel like we're at kind of a crucial juncture where it's going to go one way or another. What, what's your read on that? that? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that there is one story you would tell in which there was a cycle of struggles that began, you know, maybe in, in 2010 with kind of student movement and, uh, you know, different kinds of organizing after the recession. And then spilled into Occupy and then Black Lives Matter and there was a kind of whole cycle of struggles through that period. But I think that whole sequence is definitively over and has been for about two years. Um, and I think maybe something new is is percolating, but it feels like a very, very different political moment. However, I will say that if something happens, you know, that begins now and goes on for five years, people may think that all of that stuff, Occupy, um, 
you know, Ferguson, et cetera, was actually part of a, a larger cycle of circles. In some sense, there are different, there are different ways to periodize. There are different ways to date things, and you're going to have different stories uh, based on those. And, I mean, it, it's possible that the future may, you know, rewrite our past. That's interesting because um, you've written for EndNotes before, and you're also a theorist in your own right. You've written uh, a bit about uh, logistics and also trying to map the kind of flows uh, of capital and commodities, but also um, our ability to stop those flows. Uh, for example, the Oakland uh, intervention uh, at the docks during uh, Occupy back then. So, yeah, and, and I think you're... Well, for the people that don't know, Jasper, uh, tell us uh, tell us what happened at that critical juncture there uh, during Occupy Oakland that you were a part of. Well, so they they um, they evicted the, the Occupy Oakland camp, and then you know people essentially came back to the site and and resisted and and fought with the police, uh, you know, for um, a couple nights, and then they were eventually able to kind of. They, the the city just gave up and let people reoccupy, and um, at that moment, people held a big assembly <coughs> to decide what to do next. And everybody wanted unanimously to to call for a general strike. It was the term that they use, even though there was sort of, you know, really not a lot of connection to 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 labor uh, at that moment. And um, and so then when that general strike happened, people decided to go to the port and sort of with the, they've been working with the, the Longshoremen's Union, ILWU, there, and uh, you know, they, they blockaded all of the port, the entire, the entire port of Oakland. And that had happened uh, in many other instances, too. But uh, it was, you know, this was different because it was this mass of people doing it. I was, it was probably 20,000 people that just flooded the entirety of the port, which is a massive, you know, miles-long series of terminals and complexes, and so it was just filled with people. And it was an incredible moment because, I mean, things had generalized so much. Um, that day, I think there were about 40,000 people out in the streets of Oakland, and um, I would just see people that I knew from all of these completely other contexts. I never had any sense that I might encounter them in a political context, and they were out there, and they were excited, and that, I really saw that that was what a revolution looks like. When you just, you're out on the streets, and everybody is there. You know, the grandmas, um, people that you just wouldn't even expect, people that you think are as normal as, you, you know, as possible, and it's really exciting. You know, and it wasn't like anything spectacular happened. We were just there, but the feeling of it, of being there with that many people was just incredible. Yeah, what's fascinating uh, to me about that moment, and I remember that happening uh, in real time because we were part of Occupy in New York, is that um, in some sense the Occupy movement was separated from the uh, moment and place of production and also of distribution and, and consumption. It was uh, somewhat a um, squares-type movement, right? But there was... How did the consensus come about that in order to bring this struggle to the next level that you needed to actually go to those ports where billions of dollars of wor uh, worth of commodities were coming in and actually obstruct that flow and actually confront uh, capital itself? How did, how did that work itself out? Was it a, an instinctual thing? based on the conditions in Oakland, or was it a, uh, a process of assembly where you, where you figured out this kind of juncture, this, this uh, choke point of capital that you could confront? That's a, that's a really great...
great question. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about this kind of creative capacity for problem solving. Because what I, what I say and what I think is that, you know, there's all these people who lived in Oakland and they, 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 they realized, um, you know, where they had power. They knew that the, they knew that the port was this kind of you know, vulnerable place in the city and this place of social power where an incredible amount of wealth passes through. There's just, I mean, most people understand that about, um, about the port, you know, that's the, the center of the kind of Oakland economy. It's, you know, um, it's a place of power. And, and, you know, so that, and I think that's just an intuition that was really general from the conversations I had with people um, that that everybody could kind of look at each other and said, oh, we're going to the port. That's great. That's a great idea. There's an understanding. And, uh, but at the same time, there have been people who were working with the ILWU to kind of organize that, to organize that event and take, take the march there. But most people had no idea. And so after the fact, people decided to tell this story about how, you know, Ocu the Occupy Oakland in solidarity with the ILWU because there's this thing going on in Washington around Longview um, that, this, that, that, that the local ILWU was trying to intervene in. They told this story that there was this kind of sovereign decision to do this solidarity act um, but most people didn't understand it that way at all. They had no idea that that was what was happening. They were doing it because they were upset that the city had repressed Occupy Oakland. So they were doing it for much more selfish rather than kind of altruistic, workerist reasons than, than many suppose. And it's because they had this intuitive sense of where power lay. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think that from, from what I've uh, read of your work and from what I heard today at your panel... Um, you, you, you try to kind of reclaim this sense of adventurism, right? Uh, not quite uh, the, I don't know, uh, weather underground type uh, adventurism, uh, but a sense that um, there's a moment that to grasp and there's this instinctual movement towards these centers of power. Is there something about what happened there in Oakland where you have a movement that's at the edge of defeat that instinctually understands that there is this modus, of, this modus of power that they need to confront? Do you think there's something generalizable about that in the movements that are coming uh, that, uh, that uh, pro-revolutionary people can, uh, can learn from or, or perhaps uh, take some lessons from? Well, I'm, you know, I think that in that, I, I think that in... Um, that case, uh, people had a, a sense of when it was meaningful to kind of escalate and there was this capacity to, to escalate and desire for it. And it's, there's nothing more exhilarating than that. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I hope that, um, you know, I hope, the, I hope that there, you know, there's this, this kind of passion for organizing and organizing in, uh, in the country right now, um, I think that in some ways we've sort of gone backwards in terms of many debates. There's things that I felt like when I, you know, when I was talking to people, um, you know, five years or something like that, that th these things were settled that are now being kind of opened back up again. So I feel like sometimes there's been this kind of mass amnesia. Um, but, you know, I think that there's, there's an excitement for all kinds of organizing projects that, you know, I'm hopeful about. And, and, um, I, I just hope that people won't 
forget the kind of power of uh, moments in the streets like that because that's really when you start to kind of press on the material infrastructure of, uh, of capitalism that you can really start to kind of exert your power. Um, so, you know, it's, it's more than just kind of, you know, meetings and, and planning, etc., or podcasts for that matter. Deadass uh, podcasts uh, w- w- or magazines, Commune Magazine. Shams here. Uh, what do you feel about your magazine being pointless? I mean, like, how much do ideas really matter, you know? We're not idealists here, so yeah. we know. We know. It, it, it's all good. So to kind of wrap things up here, because we're all fucking, I'm hammered. I don't know. Yeah, we're at the Commune Loft here. Um, the Commune Superfund Loft. You, for as long as I've, uh, I've known you, and we don't know each other well, but uh, we have many, many friends in common, you are a upholder of the conception of communization. Uh, I do believe. So give the folks out there who might have a kind of jaundiced view of what communization means, uh, give them a sense of what it is uh, that communization means to uh, Jasper Burns. <laughs> what is it that communization means? Uh, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't really think that it's a particularly... Uh, weird or complex idea um, and I don't really understand where the where the jaundice comes from really it's just a particular wow. vision of but there's a lot of kind of people who there's a lot of kind of just deep ignorance going on I mean um, so and I can't really you know I can't really you know help that but there's a lot of bad faith kind of mischaracterization of it that you know doesn't really help anyone but without uh, those assholes, like, what is it? Wh- what is it that attracts you to this conception of, of what a revolutionary m- moment and movement? Well, I mean, I think that what communization does is it it, it establishes, um, you know, the preconditions for revolution to really be successful. And for revolution to be successful, it has to it has to kind of motivate the deepest passions of a majority of people. And how are you going to do that? Well, you do that by creating a situation where people's lives can get better immediately. And that's why you have to create communism right away. You know, it's not going to be exactly the same as... uh, It's not going to be exactly the same as communism that had matured for decades. Um, But you have to immediately... You have to kind of immediately improve people's lives through kind of decommodifying existing resources and reorganizing things in such a way so that people aren't compelled to work for another or forced to do something but truly doing things on a kind of voluntary basis and based on their kind of commitment to other people and their sense that they depend upon them and that's completely possible Um, you know that's what that's what a revolution would need to succeed and um, you know I think I've made pretty pretty rigorous arguments about why these, all these other ways of trying to kind of, you know, retain certain elements of capitalist society, how, how that, I, I've, you know, made all these arguments of well, why that's going to fail, um, and that's going to introduce problems and, and, and forms of kind of contradiction and destabilization that the revolution will not be able to um, suppress, and most of the answers about how you deal with that kind of problem are really inadequate. Well, that's great, man. Um, everybody, we've had Sham on the show many, many times, but this is the first time we've had Jasper on, but probably not the last. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, gladly come back. 
Well, uh, we like to have people in studio or in loft, as the case may be. So we'll be in the Bay Area in like six months or so. Oh, there's no antifada money. There's there's not that much there. But uh, Jasper, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, congratulations with the commune stuff, and and thanks for all the work you do. All right, thank you. Bye. All right, thanks. All right, folks, uh, we are back at the Historical Materialism Conference. Uh, the party was fun last night. I'm feeling a little bit uh, worse for wear, but you know what? That's fine. Uh, you pays your money, it takes your choice, as my family would say. I am very pleased to be here with a special guest. We're going to do a short interview. I'm here with Michelle O'Brien, who is uh, a member of and part of the New York City uh, Trans Oral History Project. Did I get that correct? Yes, you got it. Excellent. And uh, in addition to that, I saw a, a great panel yesterday uh, that was uh, part of introducing EndNotes 5, which I believe you have an article coming out in. Is that right? Definitely. And so uh, generally, would you consider yourself part of the communization current? Uh, I'm sympathetic to the communization current. I feel a little unresolved on some questions about transitional forms, but I have a lot of respect for, for, for it politically. I, uh, I totally agree. Um, I think that just in terms of interrogating the past and periodizing the past and trying to understand what some sort of future rupture would look like, um, even if it's not 100% correct, it's very interesting and, and very we should so. be thinking about these things. So your panel yesterday, and, and apparently your work that's coming out in EndNotes 5, um, is about something that might be scary to a lot of folks if they don't quite understand it, but it's about the communist conception of the abolition of the family. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that means and uh, why it perhaps isn't as scary as people might think it means? Sure. So I edited this revolutionary feminism reader through the communist research cluster a couple of years ago. And so I spent a lot of time looking at communist, anarchist, and, and left radical feminist thinking over the course of the history of the workers' movement and from the 1880s into the 1970s and 80s. And um, a lot of different feminists at different times talked about abolishing the family with the sort of first text that I spent a lot of time thinking about being the Communist Manifesto. And what I found is that what they meant by abolishing the family changed a lot over mm. time. But for each period, it was really the furthest edge of gender and sexual freedom as they imagined it. And in all cases, um, they understood abolition um, somewhat in the sense of afun, the, the word that Marx uses for abolition and is the name of a, the predecessor journal to EndNotes, and uh, it's sometimes translated as positive supersession, which is not just the destruction of something, but the transformation, preservation, and liberation of a, of a radical kernel within it. Through an actual process. Exactly. Right? So, so in the case of abolishing the family, taking the love and care that people authentically might have in a family and freeing that from its particular form of coercion, domination, dependency, and heteronormativity. That's a big part of families today. That, that's incredible. And uh, yesterday, I, I got a, a great little periodized um, schematic that you had done. And then, unfortunately, Jamie Peck from the Antifada uh, lost it at the bar yesterday. But um, without going through the entire thing, do you want to maybe start from uh, the breakdown of the 
male breadwinner uh, family and yeah. then take us to and, and how that related to the conceptions of abolition of the family and then bring us to today and, and what that might mean? Yeah, so I parsed the different meanings of abolition of the family in the rise and fall of the workers' movement. So the workers' movement took shape in the 1880s and 1890s and then collapsed in the 1970s. And uh, I argue that part of the workers' movement was this normative ideal that was achieved for a sector of the working class in the United States for a white sector centered around a male breadwinner and an unwaged wife at home, a housewife, uh, doing um, the reproductive labor of the home and then children in public schools and this configuration being what the respectable working class could counterpose itself to poor people. And this has been a really key part of constituting the workers' movement. And it took one form in white families and then a very different form in black life with uh, the Jim Crow system really imposing uh, heteronormative families on black people. And that prior to this, when Marx and Engels were writing, the working class family was in crisis and didn't have the stability for this kind of form. And then after the 1970s, that crisis took another form with wages being too low to be able to do this family form. Um, but that fighting the family took a different form in each period. And what it, the form it takes in our period, I think, in many ways is yet to be determined, but taking shape in queer and trans-communist organizing today. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I think, uh, I, I like how at the very end when you talk about this current period, because, of course, you're tying the political economy directly into these questions of gender and ultimately its abolition, or what the critique was at that moment in time. But it's not an idealist critique, and it's not an idealist analysis. It's based on, as you said, the workers' movement and uh, you know, the real abstraction that becomes this idealized family. So I, I think maybe for our listeners, one of the more controversial, but for me, I think very interesting concepts that you have is um, moving past... Um, the kind of uh, the gender the gender radicalism of the last period. You want to describe a little bit about um, about coming out of the 1970s. What um, you know the, what that liberation looked like and how we might be moving past. Like, you're talking about a, a more queer and more trans sort of uh, conception of uh, of those of the abolition of those roles. Yeah. This is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, and for those of us on the queer and trans left, there's a lot of um, romanticism and enthusiasm about the Stonewall Rebellion and the moment of gay liberation and radical feminism, and I overwhelmingly endorse and support that romanticization. I think gay liberation was uh, so advanced in so many ways, and there's still a tremendous amount to learn from it, but that uh, the particular political dynamics that, that it was a part of and the world that it was a part of have fundamentally changed. And that the next wave and the next form of queer and trans liberation, I think, is going necessarily take a different shape and a shape that is specific to our era and a shape that reflects the collapse of the workers' movement, the collapse of state socialism, the crisis of revolutionary nationalism, and going to take a form that uh, I think could draw a lot from some of the insights happening around communization today. Excellent. And so just we'll wrap things up in a second. We're going to have to have you on for a full podcast when you're not as busy and it's not HM. But um, is part of the, what's happening now a... Um, 
kind of supersession or overcoming of that binary of, say, homosexual and heterosexual that we saw in that last period, or is it more complicated than that? Well, that overcoming that binary was a real um, motivation and interest of gay liberationists in the late 1960s in a way that I think is underappreciated today, that I that I had a quote from the Third World Gay Manifesto yesterday about the abolition of the family and seeing the family as the foundation of the distinction between homosexuality and heterosexuality. So there was this sort of radical, transcendent um, uh, abolitionist current in gay liberationism. I think the form that it takes today, we're, um, we're, is, I, I'm very interested in struggles of poor queer and trans people, of queer and trans people facing mass incarceration, of trans people who are uh, permanently or semi-permanently excluded from the formal labor market, and the fact that a lot of queer and trans people have been in the surplus populations or the lumpen proletariat or the informal labor market, and that the position of people excluded from the formal labor market has become more and more crucial for communists to take very seriously. I think that's a great place to end it. Michelle, thanks so much again. Really appreciate you uh, doing this short little interview. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, as I said again, we'll, we'll definitely have you on. Thanks so much. Sounds great. Well, that sound right there is uh, Sean KB from the Antifada cracking a beer in a uh, New York City public school for the first time in 25 years, folks. Uh, you heard it here first. I am back with, um, I think, perhaps uh, my last interview of this entire wonderful event uh, because I'm tired, everyone's tired, we're ready to stop doing socialism and start getting real. So I am here with two wonderful comrades from the UK who I met just this weekend. First is Jamie Woodcock. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? How would you uh, introduce yourself? What do you work on? Uh, so I'm an academic uh, in the UK and I work on, on labor, on work, uh, and I also help workers organize. Excellent. And we also have Calum Kant. Is that correct? Or <laughs> That's like the most horrific mispronunciation. <laughs> I am so gringo. Yank, you know Yanks are basically gringos. You know? like, yeah, Callum like, Kant. Callum Kant. Kant. <laughs> Not Kant. That's the... Not <laughs> I said the sea slur by accident for the first time on the show. Can you believe it? No, say your name, the, the correct, nice uh, English. Kant. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, what, what do you yourself do? Uh, in so, your day to day. I'm also a PhD student, Jamie's actually my supervisor, uh, and I'm working on uh, yeah, trade unionism in the UK and the way in which uh, workers are organising in previously unorganised industries. Excellent. That is exactly the mindset that we look for on the Antifada. So I had the pleasure yesterday of uh, meeting both of you at, ran I randomly went to the Marks at the Arcade panel, which, uh, you know, was... Just kind of, I don't know, I, I didn't plan on it, and I ended up in there, and I found it to be absolutely fascinating, because, Jamie, you were uh, presenting on workers' inquiry and also a Marxist analysis of what is surprisingly one of the larger industries uh, in the world right now, which is video games. Do you want to give us a kind of quick rundown about what you were talking about with uh, Marx in the Arcade? Yeah, so this is a book that, you know, in many ways I wish I'd written a long time ago. Um, because I like both video games and Marxism. So like, why, why not write a book about the two? Uh, and I thought it would mean I'd get to play loads more video games, which, which I didn't. Um, <laughs> but essentially what the book tries to do is to make two arguments. 
why Marxists should be interested in video games, which, as you say, you know, this is now the biggest cultural industry. Uh, and it can also tell us a lot about how we work and play uh, today. But then on the flip side, why people who are interested in video games should care about Marxism. Um, and I think Marxism can tell us a whole number of things about the kinds of games we play, the kinds of games we could be playing, um, and you know why why capitalism is terrible. Oh, I co-sign all of that. Um, <laughs> uh, let's go um, to you now because uh, I want to get back to this issue. But you said that uh, that you do uh, some studies at the university, but that you're also a union organizer. Tell us a bit about the the work that you're doing uh, right now on the ground. In is it London or Oxford? In where? Brighton. Brighton. Okay. So yeah, it's, a, it's about an hour south of London. Um, so I, in the same way, uh, I kind of use workers' inquiry as my main methodology, which allows me to kind of mess around in workplaces as well as uh, just doing kind of uh, academic research um, in kind of the formal sense. Uh, so I've done a few different things, but uh, my, my biggest kind of experience so far has been with delivery riders. Um, so delivery is a bit like Caviar or like uh, DoorDash or Postmates or whatever. It's just a, a delivery platform in the UK. Um, and yeah, I was a delivery rider um, a couple of years ago now, um, and basically we organised to go on strike over wages. Um, this was the start of a process that's then spread across the UK and also across Europe. We've seen uh, an increasing wave of strike action amongst these hyper-precarious platform workers um, who have actually proven, despite all expectations, to be potentially incredibly powerful. Um, so that's been you know, one of the formative experiences for me, which is, is really proven that you know, these sectors of the economy we think of as precarious, disempowered, uh, and nothing of the sort, um, and where uh, workers are not currently organised, there's absolutely no guarantee that um, in the near future there won't be huge processes of organisation. And it's the same thing you've seen with teacher strikes here in the US. Yeah. Um, at the moment, a lot of what I'm doing is uh, with Weatherspoons workers. So Weatherspoons is the biggest pub chain or centrally managed pub chain in the UK. Um, so they're known for like cheap pints, but they also pay their workers terrible wages. Uh, so we're currently, yeah, cooperating on, um, basically they've been on strike for the first time last year, um, and we're looking at kind of the development of trade union organisation in the service sector more generally, which is, I mean, at the moment, it's about 7% of service workers in the UK are, are union members. You're probably doing better than the, than the US in that regard. Um, <laughs> what are, I, I mean, the, you make us look good. <laughs> okay. Well, the, well, the, um, the labour laws, I think, are, I'm sure, quite different between the UK and the United States. But uh, just, you know, in the brief period that we have, tell us what some of the challenges are that you had uh, and also some of the opportunities that you've had in organizing traditionally unorganized sectors. So, yeah, uh, trade union law um, in the UK is some of the most authoritarian in Europe. Um, like we've we've got um, the kind of legislation that, you know, you'd usually assault, associate with like a dictatorial regime rather than a free democratic country. Um, mostly as a result of Margaret Thatcher and then Tony Blair. Um, curse be upon them. Uh, <laughs> but they uh, basically what I really found particularly delivery workers these workers aren't like officially classified as like proper workers they're not employees they're self-employed um, and that means you can totally bypass all of this legislation right so all of the rules which are designed by capital and the state to limit the struggle of workers is really being just got rid of because um, getting rid of employment status gets rid of all of that legislation so we're seeing a direct and quite um it's the kind of struggle you'd usually associate really with something like the IWW in the US. You know, it's, it's oriented around direct action and it's highly militant and there's not a lot of kind of negotiation and corporatism going on. The trade unions involved are mostly small, new and highly aggressive. Um, and really that's been like the driving trend in platform capitalism where we have seen these new workforces, despite their, their strange compositions, have been really taking the fight to bosses. 
Um, and then also, strangely enough, that's actually what we've been seeing in some of the service sets and stuff with Wetherspoon's workers as well, um, because these workers have no history of trade union mobilisation whatsoever. That many of them, you know, you're having recruiting conversations with workers where they just don't know what a trade union is whatsoever. Um, but their understanding uh, is, you know, historically there's been this division between economics and politics within, within trade union organising. So are you just fighting for higher wages or are you fighting to get rid of the capitalist system in its entirety? Um, now, historically, trade unionism has done a lot more of the wages and a lot less of communism. Uh, but I think that what we're seeing now is that, you know, when you're organising with workers, actually the argument which gets most Weatherspoon's workers on side is this is an opportunity to fuck your boss over, right? Um, so there is a certain... As we say in New York City, dead ass. Go on. <laughs> so there's a certain politicisation of trade unionism going on at the moment, which I think is uh, exciting. But we're not still, you know, we're not seeing teacher strikes like you are here in the US. Uh, we're still at a lower ebb of struggle in the workplace. But I think the potential there is for a similar process. I think what I would say before we talk about a much more important thing than workers' rights, which is video games, uh, <laughs> I, I, would, I would say don't overestimate uh, the level of uh, worker activity right now in the United States. I, I love what the teachers have done in the red states in this country, but uh, if you look at the actual hours lost yeah. you know, in terms of strikes, we are very far from the 1970s. And I think that, that part of the reason why that is is that we have not yet found the way that uh, it seems like you have in the UK to mobilize workers who, A, don't understand what a trade union is or can do for them, and B, just feel completely atomized and disempowered in the sense that um, the, the idea of collective action would even you know, come you know, into their consciousness. Yeah, well, we've got the lowest strike activity since 1890s. That's not currently... All right, well, okay. So we have, like, 1923, so I guess we're we're beating you uh, in that sense, but yeah. And you've got a particular challenge of, you know, like, the American hell world sensibility where, uh, you know, people don't really have a collectivist way of life. And, you know, it feels strange as a British person to be saying that we're more collectivist than anyone. (laughs) (laughs) It's all relative, right? (laughs) All right, so, so Jamie, now... um, just because we we could probably spend at least an hour talking about Just City Skylines, my favorite video game, which is, of course, a city planning game uh, on the Steam network that you can play and uh, basically become a god of a city and create wonderful public transit. And if you put unlimited money on, you are essentially creating communism. But we're not <laughs> going to talk about that for an hour. We're going to talk for a little bit about what the stakes are in a Marxist analysis of this video game industry. What are the key uh, issues that, that, uh, that you find uh, confront us uh, when we're trying to understand this? And then, of course, too, what are the kind of practical remedies when it comes to confronting a multi-billion dollar multinational industry? So I think the first thing is, you know, whenever you turn on a computer or you turn on a console, it's really hard to see how much work went into that game. Um, whether it's the people who developed it, the artists, sound, PR, quality testing, manufacturing in the global south, like video games, a bit like what Callum talked about with Deliveroo, is this is something we see through a screen. So we don't see the working conditions behind it. And in video games, it's a bit like some of the tech worker organizing that's happened recently, is on the whole, these workers are paid relatively well. Um, but the downside is, much like the film industry, you know, you want the next city skylines to come out just before the holidays or, you know, a certain time or whatever. 
And managers fail to to plan out the production process that well. So people work huge numbers of hours towards the end. The crunch. The crunch time. Yeah. And, you know, in a sense, they don't plan very well, but then they also can plan for crunch, which means they get way more work out of the people who are working in the studios and it lowers the cost and so on. So there's that aspect. And then there's also an aspect which is coming up more and more, which is a lack of diversity within video games. Uh, so that most people who make video games look like each other uh, you know there are not uh, many women in the industry many people of color and so on and that then shapes how the industry the kind of games it makes the kind of uh, people it's targeting and so on if, if i could interrupt for a second that actually brings me to one of the more shocking things that i got from your talk yesterday which is we knew that the uh the military especially in the united states has been tied to the creation of these video games but even arms manufacturers, right, are, t- are tied into this production process. Is that right? Yeah. So when you buy a, a, a military video game, um, you always think about licensing as being like the music that goes into the game or like maybe some of the artwork. Uh, but many of these games directly license firearms from arms manufacturers. So when you buy Military Series X, you know, the latest iteration or whatever, some of that money goes to the developer, to the publisher, and some of it goes directly to companies like Heckler & Koch. Uh, which are like not only a terrible arms manufacturer, but also like make massive interventions around policy in the US and so on. Um, and so I think in some ways it makes me, you know, as a British person, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how do you have these relationships with the, the arms companies and so on? But I also think in a way, the whole argument about violence in video games, which is like this boring argument that comes up over and over again. What does it matter when you think about this? It's like, it doesn't matter what the outcome of the game is. You're directly funding right. arms companies that are engaged in in like actual violence. It's, it's interesting how, how um, that really focuses our attention away from something like we have a Columbine massacre here in mm-hmm. 1999. God, there's been so many mass shootings since then. But it's always been a sort of a, a psychological argument that these violent video games, now it's Call of Duty, I don't know what it was back then, right, uh, you know, are, are leading to certain social outcomes. But it, it seems like what you're saying is that there's something inherent there's something baked into this entire industry that is more violent and more militaristic than even, say, some kids going into a school. Or, or Well, I mean, the first video games came about because people were meant to be using these new high-tech computers to plan missile trajectories and overlapping nuclear warhead explosions or whatever kind of other terrible thing they were meant to be doing. And people found a way to play games with them instead. And so the whole history of the video games industry is one of these moments of resistance, of like not wanting to do boring work and so finding a way to play games instead. And what capitalism was able to do was to find a way to commoditize that and to sell it back to people. And so you know, people might have heard of the unionization that's happening in the games industry at the moment. And what the kind of point that I try to make in the book is that that's a new moment that's happened, but that resistance has always been there. Um, and so while Callum talks about service workers and food delivery workers, we can now add in the UK video game workers as a new sector who are like figuring out what it means to organize a work today. Hell yeah. So, um, again, like when you start talking about workers organizing and uh, conditions and all that, I mean, we get always very hyped at the Antifada. I wish you guys were in town for longer and we could bring you into the studio and talk for an hour. But to kind of wrap things up, uh, you, you talked about the production of these things. Uh, let's talk about the consumption of them, right? Because that touches a little bit on the Columbine thing that I was talking about. But um, what sort of effects, from a Marxist sociological sense, uh, 
are video games having upon the culture? Positive, negative? Is there any potential for struggle within the collective consumption of these things? What's your take on that? So I'm a big fan of Stuart Hall, who I quote in the book, uh, and I take Stuart Hall's approach to culture. It's like culture is a place where ideas are expressed, both like reactionary, progressive ideas. It's like a terrain of struggle for, for how we make sense of the world. And video games are a bit like science fiction, give us this huge potential to like be the god of the city and have like free public transportation and like not have horrible gentrified neighborhoods and so on, or like explore potential futures. The problem is the left hasn't engaged in any serious way on that ideological terrain with video games. And what it means is the people who have engaged, and they've engaged really seriously over a long period of time, are like the alt-right. And so when we look at video games communities at the moment, many of them are not good. Like they're toxic, they're reactionary communities. I think many people see that as like some kind of accident. Like, oh my God, it's because video games are violent or whatever, they like create these communities. It's because the left has lost this stuff. And so, you know, I wrote a book to say to Marxists, like, you should be engaging with this stuff. Like, you know, people who play games, you might play games yourself. Like, we should be having these arguments like we do with workers who are organizing. We should be doing it too around these kinds of things. So we should not cede that terrain uh, to the alt, right, which seems somewhat hegemonic right now. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you see any, um, I don't know, anything happening right now that, that gives you hope that perhaps on, in that consumptive sphere and that collective uh I don't know, online community sphere, that, uh, that there is an ability for us to push back? Uh, what are the potentials right now for that? I mean, I think, you know, there are like a whole number of like personalities on, on Twitch and on YouTube and so on that are beginning to experiment with like what does like a leftist discourse around games look like. And that stuff's really popular because so many people play video games now and surprisingly like so do so many left, you know, people on the left. But I think what we need to do is take it a bit more seriously um, and start thinking of ways we can intervene around it. And I think one for me, one of the most exciting ones is how to connect the kind of politics of consumption of video games with the working conditions of people who are unionizing. Because if those Weatherspoons workers who go home and play video games after a shift see that the people who made their video game are in a union, it starts to look at unions become a bit more of a like, oh, like, of course, we should be in unions. And so I think there's a kind of an ideological battle that we can have. Um, which we can no longer say like, oh, we'll do it if we have the time because other people have done it and they're winning it. Listen, thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, are you coming back to New York City anytime soon or probably not? Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, all yeah. right. Well, all we would ask of you, um, and thank you for this wonderful content, is that you spread the Antifada word so that someday we could potentially go and do a live show in London, which would be a beautiful thing. Oh, we'd love to have you. And we would love to have you as guests. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And uh, we hope for a report back from Antifada in London about how you have confronted not just the capitalist production system within video games or pint making, but also how you have overthrown the entire capitalist class, uh, I guess, or at least gotten yourself out of this Brexit disaster. That, that's about it. Watch this space. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Cheers, you, why don't you start by saying your name? My name? Yeah. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> I'm just trying to flip the script. Yeah, no, that's yeah, great. That's how I teach. I flip yeah. the classroom. No, you know? I, I love that. Yeah. All right.
This is Sean again. I am back here at Historical Materialism. I'm actually in what looks to be a uh, middle school classroom, or is this high school? I don't even know anymore. It's fine. Um, I ran into a very interesting, fascinating individual who I've known for some years now, and his name is Malav. Hello, Malav. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Is your last name Shah? No, it is not, in fact. It's interesting that your last name is not Shah because I do believe that Jamie and I got a text message, I'd say two, three weeks ago, from a third, three-time returning champion to the Antifada, a guy by the name of Nirul Shah, and he said that my cousin is at this family event, and he not only is, listens to your podcast, but he knows who you guys are. Is that all true? Well, um, it's on the record now, so I can't really deny it, but um, I will say that... I mostly know you through your reputation. Um, wow, the script has really turned now. Okay, go on, go on. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't blow up for your listeners or even for um, a certain Nero Shah, um, who I do have a relation with, um, how I truly know you. That's very fair. Some things are not for the airwaves. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. My, uh, my activist past precedes me, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's really um, it's a small world. Uh, mm -hmm. Since I've actually known you probably longer than Nero, mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. you guys are actually related as cousins. Yes. So since I have you here, first off, uh, explain what you're doing at Historical Materialism with you know, tabling and, and this, that, and the other. Well, I'm a publisher and editor of Common Notions. Um, we're a small press based in Brooklyn at the Interference Archive. And uh, we brought our book and we're also repping our good friends, AKA Press, and uh, trying to get the, uh, the revolution to read a little bit more. Hell yeah, that's what it's all about. So you are talking about a revolution. Uh, I, I can get down with that. I am a pro-revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it seems like your cousin, Nirul Shah, is not maybe 100% on board with all, all of that stuff. So, you know, again, without getting personal, because mm -hmm. we don't want to do that. He's family, of mm -hmm. course, to mm -hmm. both of us. You, blood, me. You know, he's, my, he's our homeboy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you guys have shared blood at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you do know him well. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, if you had to give a uh, political critique of your cousin Nero, uh -huh. you know, it doesn't have to be a deep one or an extended one, certainly not a vicious one. Uh -huh. What would you say, uh, where, where does Nero have to go politically at this point in time to really live up to your family name and, mm -hmm. and your mm -hmm. reputation, as it were? Well, uh, remind me how ruthless your, your, your listeners like to, to get in their criticisms. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'd say a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, 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 so give it to us. Give, us. give us a lot. We're literally in a high school classroom where there are, like, you know, scales of 1 to 10 everywhere. A lot is not on there, but I do understand. <laughs> Let's, maybe I'll speak in, in, in metaphors. Um, so, uh, so, so Nero, who's out there somewhere listening, will understand what I mean. Nero, I think, um, obviously I've known him all of his life. Um, he started his career um, more as a drinker than a thinker, but he's, he's undeniably brilliant. Anyone who knows him knows this. But he is good at drinking, and he is good at thinking, yes. I, I may have helped him imbibe his first drink. However, I'm pretty sure I was straight edge at the time, so anyway... There was much promise for Nero as a thinker and a drinker. However, he went off to college, and I worried for him that he would be no more than a, a beer-drinking bourgeois, bourgeois, you know. A uh, bourgeois individualist? A beer-drinking bourgeois socialist at best. Um, now, 
he's gone through a number of different kind of permutations. I think he's moved on. He's definitely a mixologist. I think he draws from a lot of um, uh, left left tendencies. His and his bar, uh, you know, of course, we've all been to his beautiful loft in Brooklyn, and his bar overfloweth. Mm -hmm. So, uh, mm -hmm. both in terms of drinking mixology, but uh, I think you're talking ideological mixology. Ideologically, yeah. I, I suppose um, the best I can hope for him, for him at this moment is to give up on the beer drinking bourgeois uh, tendencies that um, he has to cleanse himself of, navigate around the tempting. Uh, luxuries of a champagne socialist, which he could very easily be. And in fact, he, all, he actually has the money to buy us all champagne. <laughs> so um, the best I can hope for now and in the future, and the future of all of our shared struggle, is that he's a mezcal Marxist. You heard it here, folks. Malav, thank you so much. That is uh, exactly the antifada mindset that we're looking for. So next time uh, we, we get somebody from uh, your family, your clan, on the show, it might not be Nero. It right. might be you next time. Yeah, yeah. So are, are, you, are you willing to come on and correct his deviations? Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much, Malav. All right. Thank you. And we are back. Uh, this is Sean. Uh, I'm here on... Fifth Avenue, I'm sorry, 8th Avenue and West 15th Street. Uh, we just left the place. Uh, we left the conference. And I'm here with our uh, buddy, Sham. You know him from many episodes past. What's up, man? Hey, what's good? How's it going? It's going pretty all right. Um, now, you and I kind of, I don't know if it was trollingly or what, but we went to a panel, a uh, Jacobin panel, I believe, about a, uh, the necessity of a labor party in the United States. And maybe we went there to, like, I don't know, see what the other side's thinking or just to like, you know, talk shit inside of our own minds while it was happening. I left and you stayed towards the end. Can you tell us what happened towards the end of that uh, panel there? Sure. It was the greatest moment of historical materialism. Well, I mean, in, in what way was it? So, you know, the, the panel ends, they lay down the program, there's Q&A, um, they take stack, first person on stack, very, you know, mild looking, 30-something white woman, you know pretty unsuspecting gets up starts going in and she's like this whole panel's title was a lie no one up here is a socialist no one's trying to build the party wait where what group was she from well we find out in the end she's part of the spartacus league oh throwback throwback <laughs> all the way to 1919 oh my god there was see this makes me feel like there's still something that we can recuperate you know at this late date that you can still go to a socialist conference in New York City in 2019 and have a Spartacus come and do a, a, a completely absurd intervention. Does that make you feel good, too? We got to keep that Lower East Side wingnut New York energy going, you know? <laughs> That's it, baby. We need uh, those Trotskyist sects. The ISO might have given up, you know, their sectarian battle. But uh, Spartacus are going strong, baby, like some left forum shit. Hell yeah. Bernie Sanders is an imperialist running dog. I don't even know what that means. Uh, he killed Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> you, yeah, listen, folks, you heard it here first and last. Sham speaks the truth, as does the Spartacus League. All right, we're out.
I think we should talk to somebody who, who didn't go to historical materialism. Somebody who doesn't feel like a suck dem, but has been accused of that. And that is Jamie Peck. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, that's, that's what they call me, suck dem Peck. All over the internet, ugly, ugly rumors. Ugly people, don't you ever go on Twitter. No, so the real, uh, the real person that that happened to is fr- our imaginary friend, Virgil Texas. Of the Chapo Trap House. See Virgil Texas from Chapo Trap House. Don't ruin it, man. It's all—it's—it's it's live radio, folks. This is—this is the real—this is the real shit right here. So, uh, Virgil, um, who called you a suck dem, and on what did they base this hideous rumor? So I was assaulted earlier today by a stranger online. I don't know their name or their address or their social security number. Otherwise, okay. I otherwise I would politicize it. I, w- I, w- I would publicize it. Dox the fuck out of them. Uh, they said, and you know, this is just for my recollection, and you know, this is very difficult for me, as you know, that mm, Virgil, uh, I I like how you were the social democratic member of Chapo Trap House. But when you started learning about foreign policy, you became a uh, third worldist. <laughs> yeah, I'm accused about. Uh, I'm accused of everything that's going to make everyone mad. Well, Virgil, why not, this is a great platform uh, to set the record straight. Yeah, how do you feel about the Bolivarian Revolution, Virgil? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! That's not. Shut up, please. Okay, uh, Sean KB here jumping in. Uh, we had a bit of a teachable moment there at that uh, raging loft party on a Saturday night in Brooklyn. Maybe in the future, uh, it's not the best thing to do to uh, record a relatively well-known and uh, notorious podcaster while in the middle of a raging loft party in Brooklyn. Uh, so... Anyways, nobody was hurt in that exchange, but uh, we cleared the ruffians out, and here we go with the rest of our interview. We have the uh, organization of society and the industrial capacity of society to feed all, to clothe all, to provide medical care for all, to provide housing for all, essentially so for that, to allow for human flourishing, where that we all don't have to live, you know, lives of endless toil and labor. I am, you know, I recognize I'm in a very weird position because I have spent my entire life not in privilege, uh, but uh, always in debt and always trying to avoid labor. Uh, Any just society... People, you know, people say about our show, uh, you know, oh, you're Marxist, but you, you like, you make money off it, you know, yeah, check up. Uh, but the thing is, I can't imagine my colleagues would disagree with it. But you know, I'll just speak for myself then. Uh, in any just society, we would not exist. We would not be able to do our show and be rewarded for it. That's insane. We are, we would probably be court-martialed for being malingerers, <laughs> as we are. And that would be the, the just course of any society. I would, I would applaud any society that would imprison me, frankly. So what, you're, what you're saying is the end goal uh, for podcasters like yourself 
is to abolish yourselves as a class. Uh, and, you know, we're all going to assume our ultimate form. Well, a society, as we wrote in our book, as a society based on such radical egalitarianism where everyone works a little bit and everyone devotes the rest of their time to their various pursuits, to artistic pursuits where you can be a podcaster in the morning, in the morning <laughs> a gamer in the afternoon, and a poster in the evening without ever being a podcaster, a gamer, or a poster. Dead ass. Dead ass, folks, and that is orthodox Marxism. Virgil Texas, thank you so much for spending some drunken time with us, all of us at this party right now. And thank you to the interlopers for, uh, for just jumping in. Right, right. So I prove I prove that I'm not a. Wait, so you no, actually abolishing yourself was the best. Are you? Best you're you're actually that version of sexist from Chapter Chapter. Oh, <laughs> we told you this wasn't gonna happen. I, we apologize. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I don't yeah. know. You, you promise. You made. <laughs> no, I don't you're like know. one of those big shot porn producers. <laughs> we actually didn't you're say that. You're on the casting. Okay. <laughs> now you have to do the all podcast. All we said was that was that there's no one here who hates you. And I feel like this guy likes you, maybe.